Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 10 with Joseph Bienvenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. All right, so today we have uh, a guest, Jeff Pagano, and uh, you heard some of his music at the beginning of the podcast. Jeff is a composer and musician, and we've been using a lot of his music in here. Hopefully you followed the link to his SoundCloud page before and listened to it. How are you doing today, Jeff? Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> so the what we're going to do today, I'm going to tell Jeff a little story from poetry history here uh, that I think he probably hasn't heard before, and he's going to kind of be a stand-in for the audience here so he can react to it and uh, kind of just comment however he sees fit here. All right, you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Excited. <laughs> this story takes place, we're in Australia in the year 1940. And we're going to start out, there's a talented young poet there at the time at the University of Adelaide where he's going to school, and his name is Max Harris. And he was 19 years old. He was really into poetry that used daring and sensuous language, and he loved uh, the modernist poets of the, that were new at the time, especially Dylan Thomas and T.S. Eliot. And, you know, Adelaide was this kind of conservative and staid society at the time, and he was really kind of rebellious and had a lot of unconventional ideas. He called himself an anarchist and a surrealist, and he didn't really care what other people thought. He even had an essay that he started off with the line, I'm an anarchist, so what? And he wrote poetry in kind of a modernist, avant-garde style for the time. And a lot of people didn't like it and thought it was impenetrable. His first book of poetry was called The Gift of Blood, and it came out that same year. And here's one of his poems from that book. Mithridatum of Despair. We know no Mithridatum of Despair as drunks, the angry penguins of the night, straddling the cobbles of the square, tying a shoelace by fogged lamplight. We know no astringent pain, no flecking of thought's dull eternal sea, in garret image of Spain and love now loves parody. See, chaos spark struck from flint and the plunging distemper, flare in the dawn's dull seep of milk cart horse, morning horse, chaos horse, walking at three to the doors of sleep with the creamy poison, convulsions adore. From nine to five, all life immure and still alive. We know no Mithridatum, nor the remembered dregs of fear. The glass stands dry and silted. No end is near. Well, that was a poem there. What was the title of the poem again? Mithridatum of Despair. What is what is Mithridatum? I'm not, it, it seems like it's a reference to Mithridates. Do you know the... Well, that story from Greek history, but it's kind of probably not true. Mithridates was a Persian king. Or I don't know if he was a king or a satrap or something. Um, and I think this was in Herodotus, if I remember right. Um, but the kind of story, the thing he's remembered from was 
Uh, people kept trying to poison him because he was powerful, but he had slowly taken small amounts of different poisons over the years and built up an immunity with him with to them so no one could poison him anymore. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it makes more sense. So I yeah, I, I don't know if I entirely know. Uh, is that a, a... Did he make the word up, do you think? Or is like a word... It seems like he must have... I've never heard that as a word before. He seems like he must have coined that from Mithridates' name, I guess. Would be my guess there. Yeah, but then that makes sense for the poem. Yeah, how you, how you think... Well, there is the creamy poison in there. Yeah, well, he's like talking about poison, you know? It's like a more romantic way of saying that are taking poisons or destroying oneself or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, I like it. It's it's pretty interesting. I mean, you can see like kind of what he's going for there. Um, and I can see how that was probably kind of difficult poetry at the time for in 1940s Australia. Uh, so, Max Harris and some of his classmates, particularly this other poet, um, Donald Bevis Kerr, who everyone called Sam for some reason, I'm not really sure why, they decided to start a literary magazine uh, that was devoted to this kind of modernist, revolutionary set of ideals that they had. And uh, two other students, Paul G. Pfeiffer and another poet, Jeffrey Dutton, uh, founded the magazine with them. And they took the name of the magazine from the poem that we just read, and they called it Angry Penguins. And in the first issue, uh, in the in the notes at the beginning, um, it said, The production of this magazine will appear then an act of defiance. And indeed it is. But defiance is a dish to be eaten cold. Whether good or bad, the magazine itself is infinitely more important than disturbances which lie behind it. <laughs> Uh, and the story goes, I guess, the way they got the name was Charles Jury was a classicist uh, who was a professor at the University of Adelaide at the time. And supposedly he walked in on a poetry reading Max Harris was giving while he was reading that poem. But he came in just as he was reading that line that says, As drunks the angry penguins of the night straddling the cobbles of the square, tying a shoelace by fogged lamplight. And so he said, that's exactly what you iconoclasts are, angry penguins. And so they made that the name of the magazine. Do you think that's a clever name? I kind of like it. I mean, it's funny. And it's kind of an interesting image. You don't think of angry penguins that often, right? Yeah. Penguins right. as being and, angry. And what was, what was their movement considered? I um, mean, it's a little unclear i don't think they had a specifically well their style of poetry they were trying to be kind of like some mix between modernism and surrealism i think modernism and surrealism and they were reacting against this group jindy warbox and their movement was kind of it was all white poets but they were trying to make like an australian poetry and they were using a lot of things from like aboriginal stories and imagery and things but it was kind of weird because they were all white poets but their goal was kind of to make a australian poetry that used those kind of images and things that were uniquely australian but it was still kind of more conservative and stayed in a lot of ways right they were just using those things in a more traditional sort of poetry format 
uh, if that makes sense. That it does. It's weird. Modern modernist and surrealist. There. Yeah. Well, That's it seems I, a little weird, but I think at the time, I mean, you know, now you look at someone like Elliot and it and did seems... surreal did surrealists come from the Dadaist movement and then yeah surrealism came out of the the, the Dada movement which the Dada movement is was based off of what like uh, Freud and things like that it was that well I mean and like sort dreams, of dreams and like just the analysis of dreams or something or... I think surrealism definitely is I wouldn't say that necessarily of Dada yeah. but I mean that was always one of the things that Breton said was that uh but a lot of the Dadaists became surrealists, right? A lot of them did. I would say probably the majority of them did. But one, yeah, you're right about that with surrealism, though. Like Breton always said, he, you know, he worked at, in a, a psychiatric hospital for a while, and he kind of had this idea that even those, a lot of those patients that were mentally disturbed in some way, they could tap into their subconscious and create powerful images that way and that everyone had that ability in their mind and that's part of what they were trying to do um they kind of walked back from that later but i think that was part of it and i think that is maybe the connection to modernism i don't is that i think there's also this idea of this unconscious and tapping into the emotions of that right yeah i it's weird because all the all these movements transcend each other and and art and composition which i know more about composition like composers and the different styles but because there's modernist composer and then there's like a thousand other names and like almost at that time it it seemed like pretty much every main composer that that really uh ha- stands out the most or was in the forefront of everything like made their own styles and yeah it came from you know whether it was pointillism or and it and it was similar things to that or like but it's all those titles are so interesting if you dive into like actual people and then they kind of I I don't I don't I don't know I always found it fascinating because uh, they kind of don't mean anything after you like actually yeah. look at yeah. someone's work and and it it seems like the people that we know about anyways, it's like they're using like a thousand different influ you know, influences to make what they're doing and it and it's like really interesting. Some people, I mean like painters like well, I guess surrealist painters like Dolly are kind of like stuck to their thing. But they were even pushed out he was pushed out of that movement. <laughs> and it's funny. And he's the and, most famous one. Yeah. You know, everyone always called Breton the Pope of Surrealism and he could kinda decide whether someone was a surrealist and he yeah. would excommunicate people, right? And be like, Yeah, yeah you're not for their political be... views or something or yeah. whatever. Well, yeah. And a lot um, of this was tied up with and, and this too, I mean, they kinda cons- I mean, Max Harris was part of the Communist Party and he considered himself an anarchist and uh, I mean, there was a lot of this overlap of politics and art at the time. And there's this idea that art needs to be one of the tools of shattering these kind of complacent bourgeois tendencies in society, right? Like, he needed to shatter that and that art was the way to do that in some way. And I think that's what they were trying to what the Angry Penguins were trying to do, too. And I think they were in Australia, which was 
you know, much more of a conservative place than Europe was at the time. So they were trying to make their own kind of kind of movement happen there. Yeah. Yeah. Was kind of what happened. And this did well. This 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 magazine kind of attracted a lot of attention. And so this wealthy lawyer from Melbourne came to Adelaide. His name was John Reed because he had heard about the, the kind of literary movement they had going on and he was interested in it. And he offered to work with Max Harris on the future issues of this uh, and wanted, wanted to be a part of it. And Harris agreed and they started a publishing company called Reed and Harris and they started uh, doing the future issues of Angry Penguin out of Melbourne. Were uh, they publishing other people besides Australians? Or were they publishing the other... In the magazine, they were to some extent, but it seems like it was mostly Australians. I think like in later issues, in fact, because they kind of got Dylan Thomas's attention, they, they put some of his poems in there and things, but I think it never was Never T.S. Eliot, never there. I, they didn't quite get that far now. Yeah. No, and he might have been too him. big at this point. Uh, yeah. He might have been too say. big at that point, at that yeah. point, yeah. Um... But, I mean, that's pretty good. They got, they got Dylan Thomas to be interested in it. And, uh, but, yeah, I think they were mostly publishing Australians. And mostly, I don't think, you know, I don't think too many of those poets got to be big things. I mean, not because they weren't good necessarily, but just because, you know, it's hard, I think, for some of those, when you're in a country like that, for some of that to get out of your local area in a lot of ways. But, yeah, so this lawyer who agreed to work on this with him... Um, they started they started working in the magazine together but he had bought this uh old dairy farm just outside of melbourne with his wife and it had become this sort of artist community where a lot of the preeminent australian painters at the time were living there and doing their work there and you know like sydney nolan's the most famous one for sure that's probably the only one that any of our non-australian listeners may have heard of um, and he's kind of interesting. Does, does that sound familiar to it all? To it all? He's the only kind of famous one. He did this series of like paintings that were kind of famous about this outlaw Ned Kelly. They're like figural, but in in a Ned Kelly. I thought he was was he Australian? Yeah. I thought he. Oh, I always thought I he think. was. What didn't Heath Ledger play him in a movie? I felt like that with could be, another, yeah, could be, uh, with yeah. the other Australian famous actress or whatever. That it could be, yeah, yeah, that might be true. I don't know, but yeah, that was like one of his most famous series of paintings. Were these paintings of Ned Kelly, and they were kind of like figurative, but they're like all things where features are distorted and in different scales, and they're they're kind of neat looking paintings, right? And they're, they're good. Very much, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just like again trying to find their own sort of modernist painting style too, right? Um, but what was a, it called? Do you know? Was it a name for the style? They, well, they ended up because of all of this being known as the Angry Penguins. That was it. Of, that was their movement. Well, and so they was also it. called because this this uh, dairy farm where the Reeds set this up, they named it Haida, and so you also hear them called the Haida Circle. So weird. That's just awful. You know what I mean? I mean, you want to be named something that has like some <laughs> angry penguins that bad, but it is a little strange. As a... Yeah, because, well, I mean, most movements are like based off of like something that the, I mean, like the most profound way of like saying what they're doing, you know? But yeah, so they had all these painters living there. Um, I mean, he was the most famous one, Sidney Nolan, but, you know, other painters that 
are famous Australian painters, but I don't think we hear much about them. Um, I get like Albert Tucker, Joy Hester. I don't know. They're all spending a lot of time there doing their work there, painting there, living together. And it was just this really like quintessential bohemian atmosphere. Um, Sunday Reed, uh, the lawyer's wife, she was like really into vegetarian food and they, it was like, you know, this out of the way kind of farm place and they grew all their own vegetables and cooked vegetarian food only for everyone, which kind of in the forties, that's like a pretty, uh, out there kind of thing. <laughs> was it for religion? Religious? No, it was just like health. Yeah. Uh, it was just like, I don't know exactly what the reason was. I think it was like being part of nature and like all of this. So, you know, they had this thing going on and it was, I think a really good creative atmosphere, uh, for, for everyone there, right? I mean, they could kind of have these different artistic experimentation because they were all trying to do these different things. With all these different creative people in one place, it was this really like intellectually generative, exciting place. And there's a lot of conversations about art and literature and philosophy and everybody was kind of feeding off of each other's energy. And this it was this, you know, great artistic community going on. All right, so that's what's happening, right? So it's looking good, you know, it's looking good for Max Harris here. He's kind of fine. He kind of found this movement he kind of wanted to make happen, right? And they started putting out issues of Angry Penguins and it was, you know, getting some attention. Apparently, as I was looking into this, it was a little weird because I guess in Australia at the time, you were supposed to have a magazine license if you were putting out a magazine. <laughs> and they didn't have one. So they didn't really put it out totally regularly and it was this weird format which kind of worked out well in it because they had all these artists so they wanted to put like art in there too with all the literature and everything but it was this weird kind of anthology sort of mishmash format partially to get around the fact they didn't have a magazine license if it really cost money or something or yeah i mean i think it costed money but i also think you needed to like you know it was like getting a permit for something you had to like it, it was like a like process in, and yeah. yeah let them look at your magazine and judge it yeah and yeah so and I they think probably they had like, just like fuck mm, that yeah, yeah <laughs> they probably had really messed up things right <laughs> oh yeah that was probably part of it too so they so so it you know but they kept putting it out and they were kind of promoting this you know avant-garde modernist are any of the people alive thing. now still a lot of them died kind of recently, I think. I mean, they, it wasn't long ago that they were still alive. Like, Max Harris, it wasn't that long ago that he died, I think. So they were putting this out. Um, and, you know, really pushing this. He liked the Surrealists. Uh, poems and some of the issues had dedications to, like, Chirico and Salvador Dali and Paul Eluard and, you know, kind of their heroes of, of this thing. And they were, you know, uh, one of the issues that there was an Australian surrealist painter called James Gleason, and they had him do the cover for one of them. And then, of course, you know, like we talked about Sidney Nolan, he did covers for some of them too. And, you know, they were just really trying to promote cutting edge Australian art and visual art and writing at the time. And that was kind of the goal. And it was doing pretty well. Um, and they like, you know, we were kind of talking about thing. They wanted to kind of wake society out of their complacency and they kind of had the effect they wanted to have. There were people who really latched onto it and loved it and thought it was a great magazine. And then there were people that were angry and pissed off about it because, uh, they didn't like what they were doing. Right. They thought they were changing things too much. So that's where we are. Set, kind of setting the scene for our story here. Um, 
Harris was doing good too. He published another book of poetry. Uh, it was kind of surrealist poetry called Dramas from the Sky and a stream of consciousness novel called The Vegetative Eye, which didn't get very good reviews. I don't know. I didn't read any of that. You but, didn't? No. You know, Did you were, find it? I, I mean, it exists. I don't have a copy of it and I couldn't find excerpts of that one. Um, you but, couldn't even find it like in an archive, like online? A lot of this stuff, it's hard to find archives of. Although, on one of the Australian government websites, there was a PDF of collected works of Max Harris's poetry. But I couldn't find anything of the... um, And you read it? Yeah. yeah. What did you think of it? Um, I like... I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, some of it's better than others. And I mean, especially the stuff earlier in his life, like we're talking about here, I think he was doing some pretty interesting things, and I liked it. Um, and who did he remind you of? Like other, like his influences? Do you think? I mean, you can see. Like, I mean, I think the things that he's talking about are true. I mean, you can definitely see like the kind of Dylan Thomas, Elliot stuff going on. But there's maybe it's maybe a little weirder in some ways, and maybe that's his like liking sur- surrealism. Um, like the imagery is a little more oddball at times, which I kind of like. It's kind of kind of nice. So here we are. They kind of have this movement going. Uh, things are going pretty good. And then something kind of interesting happened. It's October of 1943. Harris gets this kind of strange letter. And it was from this woman named Ethel Malley, who lived in Sydney. And she enclosed some poems written by her brother, Ern Malley. Here's the letter. I'll just read the letter to you. Okay. So here's the letter. She says, Dear Sir, When I was going through my brother's things after his death, I found some poetry he had written. I'm no judge of it myself, but a friend who I showed it to thinks it's very good and told me it should be published. On his advice, I'm sending you some of his poems for an opinion. It would be a kindness if you would let me know whether you think there's anything in them. I am not a literary person myself, and I do not feel that I understand what he wrote, but I feel that I ought to do something about them. Ern kept himself very much to himself and lived on his own of late years, and he never said anything about writing poetry. He was very ill in the months before his death last July, and it may have affected his outlook. I enclose a two and a half uh, cent stamp for applying and oblige. Yours sincerely, Ethel Malley. So he gets this letter, and there's six poems enclosed with it. So Max Harris is really excited about these poems, and there's one in particular that he is really impressed by called Durr, Innsbruck, 1495. That's a description of a painting by Durr. Read that poem. So this is one. Of, this is that poem. Durr Innsbruck, fourteen ninety five. I had often cowled in the slumbrous heavy air, closed my inanimate lids to find it real, as I knew it would be. The colorful spires and painted roofs, the high snows glimpsed at the back, all reversed in the quiet reflecting waters not knowing then that Durer perceived it too. Now I find that once more I have shrunk to an interloper, robber of dead men's dream. I had read in books that art is not easy. But no one warned that the mind repeats in its ignorance the vision of others. I am still the black swan of trespass on alien waters. That's amazing. It's a good poem. Yeah, it's really beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Very no, I would be impressed if I if I got that if I was writing a magazine got that out of nowhere in the yeah and I love uh, when 
people uh, write with insecurity too. I mean, I'm not a poet, so I don't know. But I mean, with music or with other art forms, when people are insecure, there's something like really great about it because there's something that relates immediately to you because, uh, you know, yeah, well, like we don't feel like gods. Yeah, like, it lets, <laughs> you know, it lets, yeah, it lets the audience in, right? <laughs> we all feel that. I mean, incompetent or like, oh, what am, what am I doing? You know, more than feel like, oh, I'm just amazing. And Absolutely. That's a, and I, I like the imagery too. I think it's got a, some great imagery in it. And I think you're right. I mean, that's part of it is this kind of, it's confident, but there is this insecurity there that lets you feel the humanity behind the author, yeah. which is important, right? Yeah. No, definitely. So, yeah. So he's really excited. He had these poems. Um, and he immediately wrote to get more information from this, from this woman, Ethel Malley. Um, about this poet, Ern Malley, short for Ernest, I guess, Ern. Um, and he wrote back and forth with her, and he found out that uh, Malley had been born in England in 1918, and he was brought to Australia as a child, but he dropped out of school when he was only 14 years old, and he kind of just, you know, worked odd jobs and did things, you know, to, to get by. He worked as a car mechanic for a while, and then when he was 17, he moved to Melbourne, and... Uh, she didn't really know a lot about him, about what he was doing at that time, but she had heard that he was working as an insurance salesman, a salesman and he repaired watches and did other kind of small jobs to, to get money on the side. But then he found out that he was sick and that he had Graves' disease and he was dying from some kind of immune deficiency disease. And he visited his sister at that point and... She kind of found out he'd been fond of a girl in Melbourne, but something had happened and he didn't get along with her and they, they cut off their relationship. So he was real depressed about that. Um, and he was getting really sick, but he refused to have the operation that the doctors wanted him to have. And she said he had just gotten really irritable and hard to deal with. And that no one ever knew that he wrote poetry the whole time he was alive. And that uh, the only book that he was ever known to possess was this Veblen book, Theory of the Leisure Class, which is some kind of non-fiction book, I guess. <clears throat> Did um, you look it up? I didn't look that one up. I don't know what, what that is. And then he died at only 25, and he was cremated, right? He was 25? He was only 25 years old. So Max Harris is like, okay, this is great not only is this poetry quality amazing poetry but this story is like this is like another keats or something right he died at 25 was less keats behind this 23 or 24 23 i think yeah, yeah. but i mean yeah you've kind of got these echoes of yeah. keats in some way someone died really young tragic kind of tragic hero of poetry <laughs> leaving this great work behind right so he's like, this what, How is many poems was it? It's not that many. It's basically like a collection of poems. One, two, three. It's 16 poems, right? Not a lot, but enough to kind of... And you read all of them? Yeah, they're all oh. good. And you read them, and they're all good, or... I like them, they're good. They're all good. I, I really like them. So he's super excited about this. So he decided that they were going to publish all of these poems, all the ones he got the rest of them from her, 
they were going to pub publish them in the next edition of Angry Penguins. And this collected works, I guess he wanted to call them the Darkening Ecliptic. And they were going to publish it as the Darkening Ecliptic as like a section of the next issue of the magazine. Should we read one more just to kind of get a sense of their... Yeah, read your favorite. Read your favorite. Well, I don't know if I remember my favorite, but I'll pick one that I like. This one's called Sibylline. Like, like the Sibyl. Like the Seer. Like in the Aeneid, you know what I'm talking about? Sibyl. Like S-Y-B-I-L-L. You know? Not Sibylline. That rabbit's foot I carried in my left pocket has worn a hemorrhage in the lining. The bunch of keys I carry with it jingles like fate in my omophagic ear. And when I stepped clear of the solid basalt, the introverted obelisk of night, I seized upon this trum de tongue as a sword to hew a passage to my love. And now, out of life, permanent revenant, I assert the caterpillar feet of these predictions lead nowhere. It is necessary to understand that a poet may not exist, that his writings are the incomplete circle and straight drop of a question mark. And yet I know I shall be raised up on the vertical banners of praise. The rabbit's foot of fur and claw taps on the drain pipe. In the alley, the children throw a ball against their future walls. The evening settles down like a brooding bird over streets that divide our life like a trauma. Would it be strange now to meet the figure that strode hell swinging his head by the hair on Princess Street? Yeah, that's really good. That, it's, it's, it's strange to me. Uh, it's like, he actually, he seems pretty well read. It doesn't seem like, yeah, you know, he seems like he has... It's weird. That's weird to me. Cause well, oh well, that might be a little foreshadowing of what's to come. When, when they put out this issue with all these poems by Armelian, it was well-received. Here are these intricately crafted modernist kind of poems with these image scapes, these beautiful imagery in there. Right? And here's a quote from... So, so I found... It doesn't sound like a car mechanic. It, it, I it mean, doesn't it, really, no. Yeah. So is it his sister? Oh, right, we're going to find that out. We're not yeah. there yet. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm like thinking. Um, like, I'm like, it's got to be, it, it kind of, and also it kind of sounds like a woman to me more than a man. Oh, we're going to see. We're going to see what happens with that. Yeah. Okay. But, okay, but the people liked it at the time. So um, there was a good, I found a really interesting, in 1959, uh, the Australian uh, broadcasting company did a radio documentary about this and they interviewed some people um and in what year in 1959 so okay. later not that much later though not that much later right so that so yeah so some of these people are still alive that you know saw this happen most um, of them right so I yeah mean... so i thought it'd be interesting to hear what some people said about it at the time so this is this this guy was a young poet at the time barry reed and this is what he said um the best journal it seemed to me uh, the most receptive journal to new poetry was Angry Penguins. So I sent off some poems to Angry Penguins and got a very good letter back. In the first instance, I think my poems were rejected, but they were rejected in such a way that I was encouraged to look at my writing more critically, to look at the actual language I used, not to use fake emotions or things I hadn't lived through myself. It was impeccable criticism I got from both Max Harris and John Reed. And in about a year's time, I got the news that a couple of my poems would be printed in Angry Penguins. 
Well, as it so happened, that was the issue in which the Earn Mally poems came out. And after I got over the excitement of seeing my work in print in such a big and resplendent journal, I turned to the Earn Mally poems. Well, it was like an explosion. I was very moved, mainly because of the absolute freshness of the language, the imagery, and more than either of those two things, the sense of a personality behind the poems, an exciting personality whose sensibility seemed to approximate what would have been the poetic sensibility of our time. That was a man, a lonely man, accurate, satirical, bitter sometimes. He hadn't been a bookish person. He was a man who had lived and was using language originally to express this sense of life. So I went right in for the Earn Mally poems. I thought they were marvelous poems. So that's just another guy who happened to be published in that issue, right? This is that the painter, Sidney Nolan, that we are talking about before, the kind of famous Australian painter. This is what he said about the time. Yes, I think they gave a grace and a new thing to Australian poetry. I think there's a certain kind of gentle eroticism in the poems, which doesn't occur in any other Australian poet, almost of an oriental kind almost the kind of thing you see in India on the temples, and it's an ingredient that we could well use in our culture. So far, it hasn't been very conspicuous. There's one here particularly that I like. It's called The Young Prince of Tyre. He says, There is one that stands in the gaps to teach us the stages of our story. He, the dark hero, moistens his finger in iguana's blood to beseech us, Siegfried-like, to renew the language. Nero and the botched tribe of imperial poets burn like the rafters. The new men are cool as spreading fern. Well, this seems to me a beautiful example of the English language being renewed in Australia, while the older poets fall away. The language comes up again, and the new men are cool as spreading fern, I think, is one of the most beautiful Australian images I've ever read. I mean, it's just perfect. I mean, fronded ferns are the things we see from, you know, the age we're three, and they're very beautiful. And I can remember them now, and to be likened to this and a cool man, a new type of man, arising from our convicts and convicts spawn is pretty good. It's been quite an advance, you know. For these reasons, one likes the poems. They're talking about quite real issues, and they make one feel very confident. Right. So people like the poems, um, and it was well-received. So this is like a big coup for the magazine, right? You've discovered this unknown Australian poet, cutting edge, the exact kind of thing you're looking for, right? Yeah, I, I just I I already can see it's a ghostwriter. It's somebody else. I'm just gonna say that because it, it it doesn't sound like. All right. So who do you? Name. So what do you think is going on then? Pro- probably the sister, because maybe women weren't received well. I mean, that's happened a lot where they go under. That's what I would guess first. Yeah, well, that's not bad. I mean, I can see why you would say that. Yeah, yeah women weren't received well in that time or taken seriously and there is like a a femininity to the poetry but i mean but you're right there's something up here right and the first kind of inkling of this happens well harris had sent a copy of the magazine to an old professor of his at the university of adelaide brian elliott and he was impressed by the poems but he was suspicious of them, kind of like you're saying. You know, he was kind of something didn't seem right here, and he thought they seemed really similar to Harris's own poems. And he thought that Harris had written them as some kind of self satire or something. And he confronted Harris about them, about it. But Harris denied it. But Professor Elliot still thought he had written the poems. 
So he talked to the school newspaper and they wrote this article called uh, Local Lecturer Cries Hoax is Mally Mally or Mally Harris or who? Uh, where he uh, said that he and other academics he'd shown the poems to uh, thought that Ern Malley was fictional and it was prob- probably Harris who wrote it. Does it does it sound like Harris's work all, as well to you? Does I mean, I can see some similarities there. I don't know that I would have jumped to that conclusion, but I can see some similarities there. It's a great, I mean, it's a great idea if he did that. That's amazing, you know. Well, but Harris is saying he didn't do it, right? But now everyone's starting to think that that's what's going on because they published this article and it kind of the news spreads around that uh, people think Harris wrote the poems, right? And the story does seem a little too perfect, the backstory for her and Molly, right? So Harris starts getting worried and he thinks maybe someone pulled something over on him. So he hires private detectives to go to the address of the sister of Ethel Malley and kind of stake the place out and see if it's legitimate. Now, this is Max Harris talking about that. He said, that's right, yes, we had private eyes watching. We just gave them an open hand. We said we wanted to know the people who lived at his address and whether there was any connection between the names of Malley or of any literary figures in the Australian scene. This was somewhat hilarious because the private eyes got to work and were sending telephone reports nightly saying... We stood beside a telegraph pole, watching the lights go on and off for half a dozen times. And they had completely mistaken a literary situation of this kind, probably for one of those divorce proceeding jobs, and the flow of information which came to us was stunningly and absurdly irrelevant. But it did divulge the fact that we were dealing with the home of Harold Stewart. So he was the one, do you think of it? Well, you know already. <laughs> well, I know, but yeah. Yeah. So they find out this this Harold Stewart guy lives there, so something's up, right? But he still doesn't really know what's going on, except the private eyes found that much out. Uh, there was no Ethel Malley living there. Um, but then, 3 o'clock in the morning one night, he gets this phone call from Colin Simpson at the Sydney Sun, telling him that Aaron Ma- Aaron Malley was really a hoax, and that these were poems written together by these two guys, James McCauley and Harold Stewart. There is a statement in the paper from McCauley and Stewart saying that they had, this is a direct quote, for years observed the gradual decay of meaning and craftsmanship in poetry, and they decided to carry out a literary experiment. So they didn't like this modernist movement that was going on. They thought it was the decline of poetry. So they're basically deciding to make fun of it. Um... And at the time, they were uh, they were conservative poets that hadn't had a lot of success for themselves, but they had things published. And um, at the time, they were uh, stationed at the Victoria Barracks in Melbourne. They were they were serving in the army, um, and they said that on a quiet Saturday in October 1943, they sat down and made up Ern Malley right there at the desk in one afternoon. And they just opened books at random and took lines out of all kinds of stuff. The Collected Shakespeare, a Dictionary of Quotations, the Oxford Dictionary, a report on the drainage of the breeding grounds of mosquitoes, and just kind of pieced this all together into these poems. Um, And they were trying to purposely misquote things and use false allusions and try to make bad poetry on purpose, right? was their kind of goal here, to kind of show what was wrong with modernism. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's amazing. Well, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. So, I mean, but that but that's the problem, right? It's like, okay, well, so that was their goal. They were trying to like make fun of modernism. But they're they're good poems. They're really good poems. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh well. Uh I don't know. That's That's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not crazy to me. You know, I I don't know. Well, it makes a certain amount of sense that they came out good anyway, but it's Did they get in true. trouble for doing that or no one cared? All right, so, okay, so this is what happened, right? So they come out in the newspaper, they said that they did this, and they made up the whole thing with the sister to try to give it legitimacy. Um, and they said they picked the name Molly because Mal in French means bad, and they were trying to make bad poetry. And then they, when they were typing it up, they made deliberate errors and, like, typing mistakes so they could correct them, and they, like, like put it in the sun and rub dust on it and stuff to make it look older than it was the manuscript so this became a huge news story right this hoax came out and you could see like that would be you know a pretty amusing story at the time so newspapers picked it up not just in australia but all over america and europe people were publishing stories about this Ern Malley hoax and it really kind of made the angry penguins group into a bit of a laughing stock and all the stories just talked to the to those two ho- to the two hoaxers, right? They didn't talk to Max Harris. They didn't talk to any of the people who were involved in publishing the poems. So they, it was really kind of one sided in a lot of ways. Um, and they didn't publish any of the poems, of course, because that's not interesting to the average newspaper reader. They just they like this story of like, ha ha, look, these intellectuals got one pulled over on them by other intellectuals, I guess. But, you know, it doesn't matter. Well, the like... other, the, were the other intellectuals? <laughs> well, I mean, on some level, I mean, of a different type, but... What what was their type of, like, more... Yeah, they were just more kind of traditional, conservative sort of poets. But they were poets? They wrote poetry, and they were published, yeah. Were um, they good? I mean, I didn't... Uh, so so their like best stuff like, was... No. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Was doing that. Yeah. We should we should do an experiment and see if we can come up with one. <laughs> doing well, that. Yeah. Well. Uh, John Lennon did that to write lyrics. I mean, I, I, I think that a lot Well, it is funny, too, people, like, because... I mean, that one, the one piece is... Because I remember getting the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the beginning. I was like, uh, whoa, yeah. this is the Beatles song. <laughs> you know? And like, I, there's so many things like that. And and it's great, though. It, it's like not... And I know uh, John Cage did that a lot and, and stuff of his. Well, but yeah, this is kind of like... Which is kind of the real stupidity of these hoaxers, right? They're making fun of the thing, but they're using the actual method that modernists and surrealists use to write their poetry. Which doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to make fun of it, right? You're actually writing that same kind of poetry. Yeah, using the same, yeah. That's that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think it's interesting in so many levels. But yeah, but it was kind of bad for Max Harris, right? Because he didn't get to really tell his side of the story. And he, but he stuck by the poems. He said, these are still great poems. And like probably like the most famous quote for it when he was when one of the newspapers called to talk to him, one quote he did get in, he said, uh, the myth is sometimes greater than its creators. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really great. I think that that's true. Yeah, that was totally the right. I mean, he stuck by the poems. He was like, no, these are amazing poems. Anyway, they are. Um, 
it doesn't matter. I mean, about that. And it, it's kind of really great text that they they were drawing from. Yeah, oh, it's a good mix of things, yeah. I think. And the story's great. Yeah. And But I could definitely tell that there was something wrong when one book... That was dumb. The story is probably the biggest giveaway, though, because it's well, a little yeah, too perfect. It's a little, the life story is a little too perfect of well, a scenario. Well, him yeah. only owning one book, and it was like, obviously, some sort of intellectual person wrote it, because there were so many references. It was like, there's, it's got to be somebody yeah. that has like I mean, access to tons of information, at least, like tons of books, and just lives in a library. It does kind of seem like you would have to have, yeah. Because there's no way. I mean, it wasn't, and it was, never was it, like, just common language, you know, that people were using. Yeah. But, I mean, these are obviously good poems still, despite the whole hoax thing. But, I mean, obviously, what most people were interested in was the story of this hoax. But. Yeah, because people are so ridiculously. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's just like it's like now. <laughs> yeah, it is like now. If you just have like a deformed face and like weird hands, but you like do the same thing as somebody else, I don't know. It's just like we're so fascinated by like I don't. Well, it's like yeah, it's a freak show. Like people want a freak show. That's right. what they want, and yeah. or like someone you know getting kicked in the face yeah. like that love someone getting kicked in the face but um other people kind of agreed with harris um so t.s Eliot to some extent agreed with him and said that there was value to the poems he liked them he did um and do you think he ever did that ever did what the the thing of just Taking a bunch of different oh, I think I know we, we we know. I mean, oh God, have you ever seen? I mean, the one I have, I had a book of his different rough drafts. Yeah, have you ever seen that book of the different drafts of the yeah, wasteland? I have oh my God, yeah, I have. I mean, he's borrowing things from all kinds of sources, but he's kind of funny because he kind of wanted it to be clear where he got them from in some ways, which a little bit annoys me sometimes with Elliot. I'd I think it's better. I think. If it's like Elliot's poetry is better if you don't know all of that. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's probably best if some of it you pick, you know, just because you happen to have read those things and you notice them. But no one could possibly catch all of the references that he's, yeah, making. But he kind of wanted his reader to. I think he wanted them to know. Well, he didn't want to look like a fool if they found it. Or, or I mean, I can get the sentiment that he's like trying to es- escape from. You know. And I mean, I love Elliot, don't get me wrong, but but to me, I like I kind of hate that book showing all his drafts for that reason, because to me it ruins the poem in some way. Like, I like it a lot better. Yeah, not knowing. Just knowing the parts that I know and not knowing the parts I don't know. <laughs> you know? Well, it's... And, and poetry needs to work whether you get the references or not, right? That's fine if you're making all those references, but it needs to work anyway. And I think Elliot's poetry does, and it's not necessary to know all that shit, but yeah. it's a little annoying because he felt like he wanted his readers to know all that. But. Well, it's it's also weird because if we were to be, it would go so far if you criticize. I mean, because you couldn't. Obviously, there's so many techniques that are out of like literal things from something, but there's 
all that but in music still, and yeah. and then what you couldn't like but people still do film it all, all or like think that film it, it, was it an art pisses form pisses me off man and like cuz so I, many I shots or yeah. of film like no, a Wes Anderson and so many people are just direct yeah, shots man. are taken from other people and and it doesn't it doesn't that's in fine. any way yeah that's fine belittle the work at all no and if it works with the movie it's fine it's not yeah, I mean, it's just... And if you get it, you if you get the reference, that's great. It adds to it. But as long as it works with the movie, it doesn't matter whether you get the reference or not. It's still good regardless. But it pisses me off, man. I could pull so many books off of these shelves, especially poetry books, where there's a page at the end of the book where they list every line that they took from something that they included in a poem. Yeah, and it's you don't like, like man, that. No, that's bullshit. And to me, it's timid, and it's not understanding what well, you're doing. Well, and how like, much did Shakespeare take from other stories? A lot, yeah, right? Like, I mean, you, you know, I mean, that's part of being and So I, I, artist, I wonder, right? like, what they were trying to say. I mean, what their point is, and especially if they're trying to be traditional, it's like, well, you can't even say anything. Because even... I mean, you can get so traditional. No. I mean, and yeah, it's obviously you, to, to take that position is to some to some extent you're just not understanding it. what with art is in any and, way, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, all art and is Vivaldi, about he he took from Vivaldi and all kinds of people, folk music. Yeah, Stravinsky, yeah. the beginning of the Rite of Spring, which is supposed to be the most revolutionary thing, is taken from a Russian folk, old folk book song, like showing folk melodies and it's directly that that yeah. opening line and then he goes into the tribal thing and it all like adds to of course it adds to it it's like ancient you know Bartol like most revolutionary anything like, good thing. is borrowing from something in some way right and maybe directly stealing from it at times yeah. and that's fine right but I mean that, you what the on... Picasso quote that's Right? That's what he said. Uh, there's a lot of people that put about that. What's the yeah. Picasso one? Do you remember? I thought it was like, there are good, art is, good art is borrowed. Great art is, is just stolen. And I mean, some sentiment. Like is saying that it like that. That could be. A, I mean, there's a lot of people that put like Better that, than yeah. that. I yeah. mean, something better than that. I mean, it, it says, the. I mean, that's just like what it's saying. But, you know... That so okay so he's still standing by the poems like T. S. Eliot agrees. There's literary authority at the time. Sir Herbert Reed um, also agreed with Harris's assessment of the poems, and he sent him a cable saying he would have uh, published them too because he, he saw elements of genuine poetry in them and that there was good stuff there. Right. Um, so you know he's kind of got people agreeing with him, but that's not the news story that's coming across. Um, They want to make him look like a fool. But, yeah. I mean, the press is trying to make him look like a fool, right? All right. So, he's kind of in a, a difficult position, but he's continuing to vigorously defend the Earn Mallet poems. And he thought he was kind of making progress and shifting the conversation as, to being about the aesthetic value of the poems, whether rather than being like, oh, they're, they're a hoax, right? He thought he was kind of shifting the discussion in that direction. Until September of 1944, the South Australian police decided that seven of the Mallee poems that were in the issue and several other poems that were on the issue of Angry, in the same issue of Angry Penguins, were obscene, and they brought him to court for publishing obscene material. Which was kind of a big thing happening in a lot of places at the time. This was kind of something going on, right? This whole obscenity in literature thing. 
like the the same time was it happening in america some stuff had already happened in america well let's see i think i wrote a couple down because i was trying to figure out when they were so like the whole ulysses thing happened in 1921 like that and that got banned to coming from to america for a while and then Henry Miller, Traffic of Cancer, in 1934, that had happened already, too. So it also seems yeah. weird. like, And then the stuff in these or in Mally poems, yeah, there's some like slight sexual references. Like, you think of, like, the Traffic of Cancer, like, <laughs> it's nothing compared to that, right? Like, it's kind of a strange thing to be claiming that there is obscenity in these, in, yeah. in these right? But yeah, so he gets brought to court for this now. So it's still not over. Like, now he's getting brought to court for these poems being obscene. And, uh, you know, like we said, Adelaide... Not for copyright infringement. No, no. <laughs> Adelaide's really conservative, right? And I think the people are kind of upset because this hoax has been in the news and everything. And they already didn't like him. I mean, there's some talk that these hoaxers were actually put up to it by this other more famous conservative poet. And literary critic because people didn't like people didn't like what they were what the angry penguins were doing because it was you know something different for the time period and they didn't like it Jeez. but so i mean this trial was a huge deal and like people lined up on the street as he was going there and jeered at him and spat on him and his wife as they were going to court they um, spat on him they spat on him Jesus. and it was a packed courtroom and it is this kind of like hilarious trial. I don't think it was, you know, it was not intentional. But and it's when, what year was this? Hilarious. Like in the 50s? This is 1944. This 44. is only like, yeah, and that's the other thing. You got to keep in mind, like, he started this magazine when he's 19, so he's only 20 something at this point. He's not that old, right? Because what did you say? It <laughs> started in 41 or. He, the first issue was in 1940, and now it's 1944. So yeah, he's only like 23 or something at this point. Oh my god! Can you imagine you're 23 years old? You're getting sued for publishing obscene literature. That would make you famous forever. <laughs> I only hope to get sued for something. But yeah, so I mean, this is a big. This trial's a big deal. But the trial is hilarious because there's this South Australian police officer. Who's like who's the you know witness for the prosecution? This police detective, and he's trying to interrogate him about every single little image and metaphor in the poems, and he clearly doesn't. The this police detective clearly does not understand the poems at all, and it's just hilarious. And right? so he's like trying to make it all sound like he's trying like, to make he's trying to prove that it's obscene, and he's not too bright. I'm gonna read you like some small parts because it's so. So this is a transcript from the trial. Oh, this is so amazing. It's written like like the it's weird, it's all abbreviated, so I'm gonna do my best to read it, but it's like the this is the police detective talking, I guess. So he says, I then referred him to poem Perspective Love Song on page twenty one. I read out the third verse. I said, What do you think that means? He said, I haven't an opinion. I said, How about the last verse? He said, I have no opinion. I referred him to the poem called Egyptian Register on page 25, and I referred him to the last four lines of the first verse. I said, what does the word genitals have in relation to this poem? He said, I would have to consider the poem as a whole before I answered that. I said, the genitals refer to the sexual parts. I think it unusual for the sexual parts to be referred to in poetry. He said, I could refer you to plenty of other books if you wanted to find that sort of thing. 
I pointed out to him the word incestuous in the third verse. I said, what relation has this to the poem? He said, I haven't any opinion. I referred him to the poem Young Prince of Tyre on page 27, and I read the last verse to him. I said, what do you think that verse says? He says, I haven't any opinion. I said, I think it refers to sexual intercourse. He said, I don't think it does. I said, I think it's immoral. <laughs> so he obviously just is trying to like pick out, but it's crazy. Like he doesn't understand anything of what's what's going on. So what do you think happened as a result of this trial? He probably gets in trouble. <laughs> yeah, he lost the trial. Um, I mean, yeah. not too much bad happened to him. You know, he was fined five pounds. But they said he could never publish the Ern Mallee poems in Australia. Again, it was illegal for him to publish them, um, which was probably the worst part of it. But it was also kind of like, I think, a, a, a bad thing. Did the people that career. actually wrote those poems try to get famous from or like try, if they knew that they did well, did they try to like release more or like well they yeah i mean they did like bring up some of the other poems in the issue that were by actual people but i think the trial in everyone's mind became so much about the whole urn Mallee thing because the hoax was already a big yeah story. but the people that yeah. wrote those poems the the two guys that did it did no, they try was... to like do anything more with them or? well I, i'm gonna like add one pro postscript when we get to the end but for the most part no because they were trying to i mean they kind of got famous from it in the fact that they were doing a lot of interviews and things about it in the newspaper. But I don't think they were really writing anymore that much at that point, and they weren't interested in that. And they were trying to do it to make fun of modernism, right? They yeah, but they to... didn't, like, try to sell them. I mean, if they were, if people liked them. Uh, well, or, like, just gonna... if they did it in an they afternoon. Didn't, no, they didn't. They were kind of, they thought it was just, like, a joke, right? Yeah. We should try to do it too. You should read a. We should try to do the same thing and see if we can make a good poem. <laughs> well, I think you could easily make a good poem doing that. Yeah, but I did. I was gonna. So the trial was kind of a little bit of a, a harrowing thing for Harris. Uh, and this is a quote from him from that from that radio documentary again. He said, um, "It's an ordeal because one rather wonders whether cross examinations are simply aimed to wear you down to that position where you feel faintly hysterical." where you don't care what you say, and therefore out of some sheer abandonment, you make a fool of yourself, or whether the aim of a cross-examination is to find out the truth, to get to the bottom of the character or not. And it's very difficult, the moment you're involved with the law, thereafter to establish a balanced attitude. In other words, not to become bitter. I didn't care really terribly much about whether the poems were decent or indecent. I knew that in long, that in long terms of time and history, it was a storm in a teacup, a strange kind of aberration of a Philistine community. But the thing that worried me was whether this was going to get into the bone, as it were, of one's character. It was bad enough to have been the victim of a hugely successful and cunningly organized hoax, but thereafter to be attacked by society in the large for having been the victim of a joke could be extremely damaging. And he always continued to stand by the poems. He thought they were great poems, but it seemed like it maybe had a bad effect on Harris. Uh, two years later, he resigned as the editor of Anchored Penguins, um, and the magazine stopped being produced. And he stopped, you know, doing this kind of avant-garde literature, and he stopped writing for a while and became a bookseller, and really just focused it on publishing and selling books. And then he tried editing again a little later, he tried starting another magazine, but it didn't, it wasn't really very successful. 
Uh, and he continued to write poetry, but it became this kind of like quiet, quieter, more subdued sort of poetry. And it's not good. I don't like it as much. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of lost something in the process, unfortunately. But the one good thing is he still kept advocating for the Ern Malley poems. And in the 60s, when he was finally allowed to publish them again after the whole obscenity thing was less of a, an issue, uh, he continued to put them out and he kept making new editions of them through the years. And Ern Malley became a really well-respected poet despite the whole hoax thing. Um, the poems are still very well thought of. And I mean, when you think about Australian poetry, you think about Ern Malley. And the New York school poets really uh, loved Ern Malley a lot. And I think the story makes, to them, makes it even better because this whole idea of texts and the whether the authenticity of it matters and whether it, and how it doesn't really matter and how the text is something beyond the author, like right? the author is not so important to the text. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that as well. When uh, Kenneth Koch and John Ashbery and James Scholar were editing the uh, issue of Locus Solus collaboratively, um, Kenneth Koch put two of the Ern Malley poems in the issue, Um, Volta Marina and Sibylline. Oh, the Sibylline, we read that one. Ashbery said, I like the poems very much. They reminded me a little of my own early tortured experiments in surrealism, but they were much better. Later, he did imitation poems along with John Kinzilla and, and John Tranter in Jackets, um, did a special issue, number 17, about the Ern Malley thing. And uh, I'm going to put a link to that on there. It's a really great source of information. And some of the information I got here came from that from that really great issue that they did on this. Yeah, so Ern Malley kind of lived on. But you asked about the two hoaxers, and apparently for the longest time, you know, they just let... Harris continued to publish these poems and make money off of it. But I guess after he died, I think, they finally tried to like make some claim to owning the poems and to get some money out of it. But there's this kind of tradition of literary hoaxes too, but that's a big one and it's a crazy one. And to me, it's probably one of the ones that has the best, uh, best literature that actually came out of it where the literature is really good. Um, so that's yeah. only a handful of poems, but I really uh, and I hope everyone goes and reads some more the rest of the Iron Valley poems. Uh, and I think and they did it in an reading. afternoon. They did sixteen poems in an well, afternoon. Well, that's that's what they claimed. Some people dispute that. Um, and like I was saying, there's some people have this theory that they were kind of other people put put them up to it, and that there was more planning involved, and they claimed that it was that they were trying to seem like there was less planning to make it seem. Yeah, so more it like, might have okay, been the joke, and we. It would make you know. more sense if it was the famous poet, though. I mean, the one that was more like mad at him for not the traditional poet, because it seems like a I poet. mean, yeah, or if it was more organized in some way, and they planned this out, it might make a little more sense than if they just. Some yeah. afternoon sat down and did this. But that's what they claimed. They always claimed they just did it, sat down one afternoon and just pulled lines out of things and did it. But, and maybe, I mean, it's not impossible, right? I think you did. Do they know the, the, the lines like from Shakespeare? Like, I mean, I know the, some of it would be hard, but did they know the, the direct lines that are from stuff. I mean, I wonder if anyone's like actually tried to pin them all. I'm sure someone's done that, but I haven't seen it. I've tried to pin it all down. But I mean, they were also altering them, right? They were purposely like 
switching words out and things to make it not the exact thing. But yeah, I'm sure yeah. you could still figure that out. Yeah, that's interesting. But oh. I mean, that's part of probably what makes it good too, though, is one element that they accidentally introduced into the poems, right, is a humorous aspect. Yeah, they were trying to do it to make fun of something, but that's a good thing to have in poems, right? And to not care about it is probably also like one of the best things you can do when you're writing something in some way to let it go and just be. And they thought they were, you know, making fun of it. And maybe on some level they were, but that also maybe gives it a freeness that a lot of poetry doesn't have because it's too planned out, right? Or it's too, oh, it's too like trying to sound so smart and like give off like some, you know, arrogance of ego and yeah yeah and there was none of that that's why i said it was like real it was more like a woman wrote it because of like it seems like a lot of women don't have that like that <laughs> no, much you're, of you're on some tricky territory there but yeah i kind of know more, what I mean. like have the god complex and try to be yeah. so yeah. like yeah i mean so like look how great i am and no. like amazing yeah, you know right. like yeah. just like yeah. how you if you talk to a lot of times when you get stuck talking to people and they're just like trying to outdo you and a lot of are like trying to be so great and like amazing i just get tired of that shit so one funny thing that i had not heard of when i was researching this but i didn't get to see any of the poems that were were a result of this but since t.s Eliot came up i somehow stumbled across this while i was doing this it's different slighter hooks apparently when t.s Eliot was just was kind of he was he was pretty well known but he was still kind of coming up um c.s lewis tried to do a similar sort of thing and wrote a bunch of fake poems and submitted them to t.s Eliot, and thinking that he was gonna like make a name for himself as a poet in this way by uh by tricking him that's not very christian of him is it (laughs) (laughs) right I mean, maybe that's when he was an atheist, though. But no one really knows if Elliot just caught on to the trick or if they were just bad poems, but he just never responded and the trick didn't work at all. Do they have the poems? I I didn't see any poems. All I saw was, like, this story. He just never responded. That's hilarious. (laughs) I don't know. Hoaxes are interesting. Maybe we'll do some other literary hoaxes in the future. There's a couple other good ones I can think of uh, that might be worthy of some time. But, uh, yeah, thank you, Jeff, for joining us today. Um, it's been a pleasure. And, yeah, I mean, we're going to have you back again, I think, to do some more music-related stuff. But thank you for humoring me with this unmusic-related story. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. And we will see you again next week.